Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by FedEx. Small and medium businesses need happy customers. That's why FedEx offers picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and over 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Cars.com. Have you heard about the Your Garage feature on Cars.com? Here's how it works. You add your car to your garage to track its market value and cash in when the time is right to sell. Track both your car's historical and projected value. When it's time to sell, easily secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with Your Garage on Cars.com. Where I live in the great northeast of the United States, spring has finally gone full bloom and summer is right around the corner. When you get outside, it's beautiful. The trees, the flowers, and of course, the lawns. Who doesn't love a good lawn? It looks good, smells good, feels good. For a lot of people, a lawn is the perfect form of nature. Even though, let's be honest, the lawns we like don't actually occur in nature. Even though the process of producing such a lawn is full of the most unnatural activity. Even though this unnatural slice of nature requires so many inputs, the water, the fertilizer, the weed killers, the mowers and trimmers and the leaf blowers, the fuel to power all this machinery, the fuel to power the trucks, to transport the people who run the machinery, all in pursuit of the perfect lawn. From WNYC Studios, this is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. Give me briefly as you can a history of the lawn. Uh, If you go look at the Oxford English Dictionary and try to find the word lawn, you'll see that uh, it dates from the 16th century, from Old English for uh, an open space or what was called the glade. Ted Steinberg is a history and law professor at Case Western Reserve. I'm the author of uh, several books, uh, including American Green, uh, The Obsessive Quest for the Perfect Lawn. And these lawns, as it were, that existed back in uh, 16th, 17th, 18th century England were typically found on estates. Now talk about how America got into lawns and the degree to which they upped the game. So lawns go way back in American history. Washington and Jefferson, of course, had lawns. Nevertheless, even well into the 20th century, uh, people, especially working class people, were more concerned with, how shall I say, the use value of their yards as opposed to the exchange value of the of the landscape. And what I mean by that is that working class people would raise uh, small livestock in their yards or raise uh, vegetables. Uh, that said, um, the really big 
expansion in the lawnscape, if I can call it that, happened uh, after the Second World War uh, with suburbanization. This is Levittown, one of the most remarkable housing developments ever conceived. Between 1947, uh, 1951 or two or so, uh, the Levitts mass-produced some 17,000 homes on what had been uh, a bunch of potato fields on Long Island in New York. Well, every one of those 17,000 homes had a lawn surrounding it. If you look back at the uh, deeds for Levittown and other places, you'll find that there are covenants in them requiring the owner of the new Levittown home to mow their yard once a week. Yes, that old potato patch has come to a good end. Today, Americans spend roughly $60 billion a year in what's known as the turf grass industry. This covers lawn supplies, lawn services, and so on. That figure includes sports fields, commercial properties, and private lawns. Lawns account for about two-thirds of the total square footage. And how much square footage is that? That's about 14.5 million acres of turf. That's Christina Malese. I'm a scientist by training, and I worked for NASA for over 10 years. Today, Malese is an independent environmental scientist, 40-odd million acres of turf. For reference, that is bigger than Iowa. Malaysia hadn't set out to measure the size of America's lawn. In fact, quite the opposite. I was uh, working to map the amount of paved area in the United States. Mapping out paved areas included using satellite data that measured nighttime light emissions. Light emissions that come from basically turning on streetlights at night. She and her team also used aerial photography, which, of course, showed more than just paved areas. Yeah, we also took measurements of how much lawn area there was and how many shrubs, shrub area and tree area. And that's how they came up with 40.5 million acres of turf, which is just a bit less than 2% of the United States. Paved areas, meanwhile, make up just 1.3%. The sheer volume of grass got Malaysia thinking. How are lawns actually functioning as an ecosystem? We use water, but also fertilizer and pesticides, and then we use lawn mowers and leaf blowers. But they, they are plants, so they photosynthesize, they absorb carbon. What's the balance between what we put in and what we put out? And so I decided this would be a worthwhile question to ask The specific question being whether lawns are, from a carbon perspective, net positive or net negative. She began by trying to tally how much water people use on their lawns. The standard recommendation, especially where rainfall doesn't do the job, is one inch of water per week. And I came up to some numbers that I could not believe. What were these unbelievable numbers? The total was about 20 trillion gallons per year on lawn watering. You want a little context for that number? Consider that we use just 30 trillion gallons to irrigate all our crops. Next, Malaysi calculated how much carbon the turf grass stores in the soil. And then I subtracted from it the amount of carbon that was associated with nitrogen, the fertilization, and the amount of carbon that was emitted by using a typical lawnmower. And what did she learn? I learned that the turf would become a sink of carbon. And this is not surprising. Uh, A plant, given plenty of attention 
photosynthesizes carbon. But uh, it comes at the cost of producing the fertilizer or mowing the grass and all the industry that comes around it. So even with those costs included, lawns look pretty good from a carbon perspective. On the other hand, Malaysia's model didn't include inputs like the carbon emissions from the trucks that lawn crews drive or the original manufacture of all that lawn care equipment, nor did it include the energy used to deliver water to households and clean it for human consumption. We should not forget that this is uh, drinking water. I did not account for those costs. And as just about any economist will tell you, water is often woefully underpriced, which can lead to overuse, especially if you're growing a grass species that wasn't meant to grow where you live. Kentucky bluegrass or uh, creeping bent grass evolved in the cool, moist uh, climes of northern Europe. Ted Steinberg again. And it's not all that easy to grow them here in the continental United States uh, and especially in arid parts of North America. If you go to California, you'll find still uh, lawns with cool season turf grass. Every square foot of that turf grass requires 28 gallons of water, roughly speaking, per year, every square foot. But that's for the coastal environment. If you move inland to uh, a more arid part of California, that number increases to 37 gallons of water or more per square foot of lawn. We waste so much water. That's Eric Garcetti. I'm the mayor of the city of Los Angeles. We spoke with Garcetti last year when California was deep in drought. In Los Angeles, lawns and landscaping use a whopping 50 percent of Los Angeles's water. And the drought had doubled what the city was paying to import water. So Garcetti used incentives to change behavior. The city paid residents to install rain barrels to capture water for their lawns. It paid them to replace their lawns with drought-tolerant plants. I said, if you have a lawn and you're using it, great, keep it and pay for the water to water it. But if you're not, well, let us pay you to switch that out to beautiful flowering green plants that use a lot less water. And we were able to do that with over 50 million square feet of lawn uh, just in the last couple of years. We reduced our water in the face of this drought, uh, our water usage by 19% without having to fine anybody, without having to you know, crack down with the water police, but by inspiring people through public education and rebates, giving them free cisterns, changing out their toilets, all those sorts of things. What works in California won't necessarily work elsewhere. And California is more aggressive than most with environmental regulations. For instance, it's currently pushing to lower emissions on lawn care equipment, which tends to have particularly dirty little engines. They're also really noisy. If you just hear the sound of a leaf blower, it has these really interesting low-frequency and high-frequency components. That's Erica Walker. She just got her Ph.D. in environmental health at Harvard. So not only is it traveling inside of your walls, but it has this high-pitched hum that's just really annoying. In Boston, Walker helped compile a citywide noise report which mapped, among other things, leaf blower annoyance levels. A lot of places have banned leaf blowers or restricted their hours, especially the noisier gas-powered models. Walker was interested in the relationship between noise and public health in a city like Boston. Sleep disturbances, I think, the, the direct relationship between sound and negative health. The World Health Organization suggests that daytime noise levels shouldn't exceed 55 decibels. 
Walker wondered how leaf blowers registered, even if you weren't the one blowing the leaves. We see that even when you move 400 feet away from the point of operation, you're still getting sound levels that are in excess of what the World Health Organization recommends for um, daytime sound levels. But then we also learned that these leaf blowers have a strong contribution from the lower frequencies. It has an ability to travel very long distances and penetrate through the walls. So it's really hard to mitigate. And we see in the epidemiological literature that low frequency sound is creating negative health effects above and beyond high frequency sound. So what have we learned so far? We have a lot of lawn in America, and our pursuit of the perfect lawn is noisy and resource and labor intensive. Lawns do, however, serve as carbon sinks, and of course they're beautiful, at least many people think so, and useful for playing, for picnicking, for relaxing. Coming up on Freakonomics Radio, we love lawns so much, we even plant them beside our highways. A standard cloverleaf takes up about 16 acres of lawn. And if you don't want to have a lawn in your yard, what can you have? You know, I think the best year I had it was like 2,000 pounds of sweet potato. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Redfin. Whether you need to buy or sell a home or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin has got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even the same day with a local Redfin agent. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents get you the best price possible for your home. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Marriott. Town Place Suites by Marriott has all the comforts of home. Cook up a meal in a full kitchen, unpack and stay organized with the in-room alpha closet system, plus bring your pet and have your best friend by your side. Town Place Suites by Marriott has all the amenities you need to feel at home during your stay. Find the comforts of home at Town Place Suites. Go there with Marriott Bonvoy. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Amica Insurance. Amica Insurance is all about empathy. They know your auto, home, and life insurance are more than just policies. Home insurance is about protecting the life you've built. Auto insurance is there to protect you on the road ahead. That's why Amica takes a consultative approach to help protect what matters most to you. They are a customer-owned insurance company that puts your needs first, and their representatives are available 24-7 for claim-related matters. As Amica says, empathy is our best policy. Why did we make this episode about the costs and benefits of lawns? Mostly because of you. 
Occasionally, we ask Freakonomics Radio listeners for story ideas, especially for what we colloquially call our Stupid Stuff series. That is, things we do or use or submit to that are, on some level, kind of stupid. Well, last time we asked for your Stupid Stuff ideas, quite a few of them concerned lawns. Pat Allen from Trinity, Florida, wrote, What is up with the American addiction to lawns? John Faulkner of Arlington, Virginia, complained about noisy, smelly lawnmowers. And then there was Alan Turner. I'm from uh, Newcastle, Delaware. My uh, formal training, my initial career was in landscape architecture. And right now, I'm looking at the highway median at the rest stop on I-95, just south of Wilmington, Delaware. Turner's pet peeve is what's in that highway median, grass. And it looks like this grass gets mowed three times in the summer, let's say. It's not just in highway medians, but also those cloverleaf interchanges. A standard cloverleaf takes up about 16 acres of lawn. Turner understands why these are all grass. Grass is cheap. Grass is the cheapest ground cover you can install. The problem with grass is that it's also the most expensive ground cover to maintain. And it has to be maintained, mowed especially, for safety, for good sight lines. So you've got all that mowing and all those traffic delays when the mowers are out there in the medians, Turner's idea is to plant highway medians with plants that don't require maintenance like grass does. The seed might cost slightly more, but that's the only difference. And then you'd get a permanent ground cover that needs no mowing. I can honestly say this is the first time I've ever been asked to talk to anybody about roadside vegetation management. That's Doug Hecox with the Federal Highway Administration, which advises states on how to maintain their highway grass. Nobody asks us about plants. They ask us about traffic and potholes. But I think conservatively, we've got about 17 million acres of roadside vegetation. Roadside grass dates back to the early days of auto travel. Having a grassy area near the road in case somebody broke down or wanted to just rest after this ordeal of driving around was a very tempting option. So that's what began. And as time went on, grass sort of became an expectation because everywhere you went, there it was. And when you didn't have it, people noticed it. That was the prevailing attitude. We want these roads to look inviting. We want them to look like your front yard. That began to change as early as the 1960s, as state and local governments realized how many resources went toward maintaining all that grass. And in the 70s and 80s, we began to realize the water was really a big issue. And states dealing with tight budgets began to plant native grasses, things that were a little bit more water efficient. And grasses that didn't require as much mowing. But still, how about Alan Turner's idea to get rid of grass entirely in favor of something that requires no mowing? I think he does have a point. However, I'm also uh, not willing to say that states haven't already considered that. Uh, There may be reasons why they have to plant what they have. Budgets are so tight at the state DOT level. Okay, so what about not replanting, but also just not mowing the grass at all? If you were to let something just go wild or return to nature, that sounds great. It sounds easy. It sounds cheap. And it is. It's not necessarily the best choice, though. That's where the invasive species thrive. And that becomes a little habitat for You know, like in the south, you've got kudzu that grows all over the place. And you've got other kinds of invasive species that pop up and start to proliferate, invading local neighborhood lawns or farmers' crops. It can get out of control. 
I totally understand what he's saying, and that's the assumption. That is Sarah Wigginton. But I think we have to look and see if what we assume is really what's going to happen. And that's basically what we decided to do. She's an ecologist working on her Ph.D. at the University of Rhode Island. My ecological research focuses on finding creative solutions to human-caused environmental issues. She and her colleagues had a question about invasive species. The question that we were trying to answer was if invasive species actually do proliferate in uh, roadside areas that are taken out of the regular mowing management strategies. They took advantage of a sort of natural experiment in Rhode Island. The Department of Transportation typically mows its roadsides anywhere from three to ten times a year. But over the past decade, it decided to reduce mowing in some areas and stop entirely in others. We classified that as passive restoration because you're just taking it out of the mowing circulation and then letting it go, letting succession take course. This let Wigginton and her colleagues compare the number of invasive plant species in the mowed areas versus the unmowed, which had begun to grow wild. They also looked at young forests nearby, which had never been mowed. How did they collect those data? It's um, not super glamorous. We basically lay out really long tape using compasses to make, you know, straight angles. And then in a very, very time-consuming process, we document every single species that we see in these subplots. What'd they find? We found that invasive species are not proliferating significantly in these areas that are taken out of the traditional mowing scheme. They have the same number of invasives as both the young forests and the traditionally mowed areas. So I would advise that state DOTs move as much of their land as is reasonable to a reduced or low or no mow management scheme. Well, I think the easiest thing to do is to elect to have what I call a low-maintenance lawn. That's Ted Steinberg. Again, he is talking about personal lawns now, not highway medians. Overtreatment is the single biggest problem that we have here in the United States with respect to lawn care. So right away, scale back on the chemical applications. You can get away with three applications of fertilizer per season. People also probably need to actually learn a little bit about the ecology of their yard. They, to do it right, you probably should get a soil test. Not a big deal. Leave the clippings on the lawn, for God's sakes. Don't put them out on the curb because the clippings break down and they return nutrients to the soil. And I would argue, consider stopping the irrigation. Brown's not so bad. Oh, I think you just lost a lot of our lawn-loving audience right there. Oh, I think, that's, that's too bad. I'm not saying I disagree uh. <laughs> with you. I'm just saying that I think when most people think of a lawn, brown is death. Brown is the enemy. Brown is not a lawn. The next time your lawn, if you're worried about this, it turns brown, go out there, get down on your hands and knees and look at the, at the grass. It's not dead, most of them. I mean, it, if you have a horrible drought, okay, I get it. <laughs> okay. Uh, but if it's not, when it appears to be brown, it's actually dormant. And you'll see a little bit of green where the blade meets the soil. The individual plants, most of them, are still alive. Ted, I think even you would have to admit that if you got your way and if America suddenly woke up and said, you know what, a low-maintenance lawn is good enough. It makes a lot of sense. Aesthetically, it's fine. Environmentally, it's probably better. Noise-wise, et cetera, et cetera. But think of the jobs you're killing I mean, this is a pretty substantial part of the labor market, especially for low education workers. Are you, Ted Steinberg, professor of history and law, willing to take the heat 
for killing off all those jobs? I think one of the big problems that we have in the United States today, maybe even in the world, is a lack of meaningful employment. But actually, it might not be as dire as you're implying here. You're still going to need people to mow the lawn. Maybe not as much. You don't really need necessarily to mow your lawn once a week. So this could represent a savings, obviously, to consumers. And it might not be the case uh, that the floor is going to fall out of the job market because Ted Steinberg advocates for you know, less in the way of perfection in lawn care. There's also the possibility of repurposing your yard entirely. Maybe a tennis court or an outdoor library or taking a page from our past. Hey, Jim, my name's Stephen. How are you? Good. Hi, Stephen. I'm Jim. Jim Kovaleski is a front yard farmer in Newport Ritchie, Florida, a small city just outside of Tampa. All right, so let me ask you this. You came up in lawn care. Um, did you enjoy that work? You know, I might have thought I did, um, you know, but now every time I see a lawn trailer, I just shiver. You know, it's just like terror. I don't know. So I, I don't. Yeah, I didn't. And, you know, I, I had to use so many chemicals, especially in, in um, you know, as I came to Florida, because the lawns they got here, they've got kinds of grasses that will not grow without pesticides and herbicides. You can't get them to do anything. But vegetables and fruit are a different story. He grows sweet potatoes and black-eyed peas, star fruit and avocados. Lettuce and broccoli and cabbage and cauliflower. Kovaleski turned a front yard into productive farmland. He started with his own yard, then expanded to his mom's house down the street. And then my ex-wife just bought a house right next door to her three years ago and offered me her front yard, which is full sun. So it's allowed me to have a lot more growing space. He sells his produce at a local farmer's market. You know, I think the best year I had was like 2,000 pounds of sweet potatoes. But theoretically, if I get better at this, this should be producing like 15,000 pounds. I cannot believe how much value can come out of a small piece of land. Kovaleski gardens all winter in Florida, and then he drives his 1965 cherry red pickup truck to Maine, where he does the same thing. In both places, he's known for his salad mix. I call it a greens mix, and I kind of plant very diverse. Like, it could be, you know, 100 different leafy greens, and I'll go through the garden and kind of mix it as I pick it, and then I wash it and spin it and put it in a bag and sell that. And, you know, I'll sell, you know, in Florida, I probably sell... 2,000, 2,500 of those bags a year. And in Maine, it's pretty much the same mix and, you know, maybe 1,000 up there. I don't, it's a shorter season and it's not as populated. So I, I make more of my money in Florida for sure. So how much money do you make? You know, I'm doing really well. I, you know, I do keep track because um, I want to show people how much you can make because it's pretty much a cash business. I could hide stuff, but I haven't. I've kept track for the last three years or Two years, really good. So I think first year that I kept good track was like 24 grand and then 27. And I bet I'm on a pace of like 35 this year. And so I have very little expenses. So, you know, 35 grand's a lot of money. I don't know where to spend it, actually. Do you have any help or no? It's just you. No, you know, I've, you know, I'm kind of a fuss budget. And, um, you know, I've, I've, I've learned that, you know, it's more stressful for me to try to work with other people and make things happen. It's more of my focus is to see how productive a small piece of land can be. And I'm seeing that every year I'm getting better at it. Are there or were there any legal issues or ordinances you had to deal with to plant a garden in a front yard there? 
you know, we're fortunate here because, you know, it is a non-deed restricted community, so there's not much for uh, ordinances. And so there's nothing against the law to do this. I mean, potentially there could be some enforcement issues about, you know, height of vegetation, but it's always looked so good that was never an issue. So you sound like a pretty live and let live kind of guy. But on the other hand, it sounds like you would be pretty happy if you started a front yard garden revolution, yeah? I would. You know, I wouldn't think I'd be one to lead something like that, but I've found that, you know, people follow things that work. I haven't done any promotion over this 10 years, but there's been a lot of press. I've been amazed at how people are just longing for this. And, you know, I think it's poised to take off. And so, you know, potentially we can put people back to work on the land. A farm in every yard? That is hardly the direction our economy has been moving in, either the agricultural economy or the lawn care economy. But who's to say? The rise of the lawn was probably not foreseen. Would a return to personal farming be any more surprising? That's it for Freakonomics Radio this week. Coming up next time, Steve Hilton was for years the man behind and beside British Prime Minister David Cameron. Well, we haven't been in touch since the Brexit vote. (laughs) I think there's not much to say beyond that. Now Hilton lives in America, where he's taken up a new crusade. We want to end the, the way that big money donors dominate politics. And while Hilton is nearly unknown here, that won't last for long. He's got a new show on Fox News called The Next Revolution. And that is going to focus on what I'm calling positive populism, how we deal with the issues that have arisen as a result of the populist uprisings we've seen around the world. Steve Hilton in all his candid, occasionally absurd glory. That's right. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Freakonomics Radio is produced by WNYC Studios and Dubner Productions. This episode was produced by Christopher Wirth. Our staff also includes Shelley Lewis, Merritt Jacob, Greg Rosalski, Stephanie Tam, Eliza Lambert, Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, and Brian Gutierrez. We also had help this week from Sam Baer. Thanks to Kevin Morris at the National Turfgrass Evaluation Program, Teresa Adams at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Robert King of the Delaware Department of Transportation, and Christopher Dilbeck and Dr. Michael Benjamin at the California Air Resources Board for their help in reporting this episode. Thanks also to Justin Maybe, Amy Sturgeon, Pat Allen, John Faulkner, Sarah Schneewind, and all the other listeners who sent us their suggestions about lawn care. Ted Steinberg's latest book is Gotham Unbound, The Ecological History of Greater New York. You can subscribe to Freakonomics Radio on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You should also check out our archive. It's at Freakonomics.com. You can stream or download every episode we've ever made. You can also read the transcripts and look up the underlying research. We can also be found on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. 
Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. At Rural First, we're the leader in rural construction loans because we don't work here. We work out here. We live rural, which means we know just what you need to build rural. Our dedicated team of loan specialists works with you throughout the construction process. And with our digital tool, you can manage your project all in one place. That's how Rural First gets you closer to what matters. Rural First is a registered trademark of Farm Credit Mid-America. NMLS 407-249. Equal housing lender. Loan subject to approval and eligibility. Other terms and conditions may apply. Visit RuralFirst.com for more details. Picture this. It's Saturday morning and you're on your John Deere compact tractor. You're effortlessly breaking ground on your new landscaping project. Next, you're moving piles of rocks just by moving a lever. And now, you're enjoying the warmth of the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand everything you can do with a John Deere compact tractor, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.